Hello, in the beginning there was a big bang which led me to the creation of brief history of time. Now from beyond the grave. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-
some pick and mix. You know, what am I going to do with this? I don't know. The possibilities are endless as long as it's not more than a pound. If that is what the if that if that is what the the conversion rate is, because we don't even know how much that is in Australian cents right now. But I know I might have made twenty pence. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it's 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 even worse because well, let's face it, the UK the UK economy was sucking before all this kicked off and now it's sucking even more so anyway enough uh, chit chat and politics and conversion rates hang me oh hang me I'll be dead and gone hang me oh hang me I'll be dead and gone wouldn't mind the hanging But the laying in the grave So long, poor boy Been all around this world Been all around Cape Jerdo Parts of Arkansas All around Cape Jerdo Parts of Arkansas I got so goddamn hungry I could hide behind a straw Poor boy been all around this world I went up on the mountain There I made my stand Rifle on my shoulder and a dagger in my hand, poor boy, been all around this world. Put the rope around my neck, hang me up so high. Put the rope around my neck, they hung me up. Last words I heard him say Won't be long now for you to die Poor boy, been all around this world So hang me, oh hang me And I'll be dead and gone Hang me, oh hang me And I'll Wouldn't mind the hanging But the laying in the grave So long, poor boy Been all around this world This week's film, agreed by both of us and hopefully by anyone that was listening, is Inside Lewin Davis, which was directed and written by Joe and Ethan Cohen. I'm going to come out and say... I really quite enjoyed this. Dave is far more clued up in the ways of the Cohen um, and has seen far more Cohen Brothers films. But I, I will not speak for you. What's uh, what's your general thought and vibe on Inside the Loon, Davis, Dave? Well, I'm a little bit more sceptical. I am perhaps a little bit more 
on the fence. I never saw Llewellyn Davies at the cinema and I purchased it on Blu-ray when it came out back in 2013. And when you suggested Llewellyn Davies, I went and checked my collection and lo and behold, it was still inside the shrink wrap. <laughs> uh, so I, not only was it a perfect choice, but I, there's certain times when I will... I need to be in the mood for a certain type of film and yeah. it just never arose. So the podcast gave me that, finally, that opportunity to watch the movie. Now, with Coen Brothers, people can go into their films and absolutely hate them. Mm -hmm. And then they go back and they review them. And actually, they, they tend to get better and better with multiple viewings. Uh -huh. so a yeah. prime example is that I hated fargo when i first saw it oh really fargo is now one of my favorite films of all time oh okay if my wife and i are struggling to think of something to watch if we want to put on something that we know we're going to laugh at we will put on fargo mm. and thoroughly enjoyed the tv series that they made out of it as well there's three seasons oh, yeah. of fargo available so i tend to to go into a coen brothers film expect with kind of not big expectations, but a bit kind of guarded because I know that the more I view something, there is that potential that this is actually really going to grow in me. It's yeah. going to hook me in. So I took the shrink wrapper off. I put it in the Blu-ray player and I watched it. My gut reaction first viewing was I hated it. And hate is a strong word. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I really hated it. And then... I thought, but I know that things can improve with watching and maybe I'll see something that I didn't see the first time. So I've since watched it another three times and my hate for it is just increasing. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, there's a there's something that goes against the Coen Brothers formula of re-watching films and it seems to be and, this one. And I, do, I, I really like the Coen Brothers. Yeah. No Country for Old Men. Mm. I read the book. I thought the film was an incredible adaptation. I've always been drawn to their early movies, Raising Arizona, The uh, Miller's Crossing, The Big Lebowski in particular. And quick shout out, if anybody's not aware, that John Turturro, who plays Jesus in The Big Lebowski, has recently made a spin-off movie called The Jesus Rules which got released at the tail end of 2019 and it should be available soon on streaming platforms. So check that out. I see you roll your way to the semis. Dios mío, man. Liam and me, we're gonna fuck you up. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Let me tell you something, Pandeo. You pull any of your crazy shit with us, you flash a piece out on the lanes, I'll take it away from you and stick it up your ass and pull the fucking trigger till it goes click. Jesus. You said it, man. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. And I like their movies. They find humor in situations that shouldn't necessarily be humorous. Yeah, that's true. But I just couldn't get into this movie i will talk about later on the positives that i did find because mm -hmm. when i get to my rating system i've not completely slaughtered it i have given it a number <laughs> and and that number is based 
mainly on one main thing. But I'm not going to talk about that okay. just now. So I couldn't get into it. Mm. I tried. I really, I really tried. I gave it ample opportunity. And like I said, my hatred just grew. Mm. And that is not normal. No. Like you've already said that, that for me, it has gone against the Coen brothers' formula of this gets better with every viewing. Yeah, the, the one contrary exception. That's where I'm at. So if, if you can obviously tell people what the film is about, bearing in mind that whenever we are discussing our podcast listeners, whatever topic we're on, whatever movie we're discussing, we are going to talk about the film in great detail. We're not going to hide things when it comes to plot. Where's my button? Spoiler! 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 Doug is going to tell us what the film is about, but this podcast contains spoilers. So please watch the movie. Just because I didn't like it doesn't mean that you won't like it. It probably will, but it doesn't mean <laughs> it will. Yes, on you go, Doug. Cool. Okay, well, the synopsis for the film. In 1961, New York City, folk singer Owen Davis, played by Oscar Isaac, is at a crossroads. Guitar in hand, he struggles against seemingly insurmountable obstacles to make a name for himself in the music world. But so far, success remains elusive. Relying on the kindness of both friends and strangers, Loon embarks on an odyssey that takes him from the streets of Greenwich Village to Chicago Club, where awaits a music mogul who could give him the break that he desperately needs. Now that's pretty concise. That's that's yeah. That, that's essentially it. Just adding cats and people screaming at him and him getting beat up in alleyways, and that's that's pretty much the film. So that's yeah, that's a pretty damn good synopsis. And yep, like we said earlier, directed and written and directed by both Joel and Ethan Cohen. Yeah, I thought. I mean, like 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 we said earlier, you've seen far more Coen Brothers films. I've seen a few. I've seen probably some of the bigger ones, like things like The Big Lebowski, and it was years ago that I've watched any Coen Brothers film. I mean, I'm sure I watched Burn After Reading, and that again, that was potentially the year it came out, however long ago that was. I mean, from what I remember yeah. of Coen Brothers films is that a lot of the time they tend to come full circle in one way or another, whether it, whether it literally is the story kind of starts where it finishes in the same sort of scene or some other kind of device. There are there are kind of not necessarily tropes but definitely signature marks that you will find in Coen Brothers films and I don't think this is any different to be honest. No, and um, you say in there that the especially with the in terms of the plot or the narrative it coming full circle. Some people might not necessarily understand what that what that means. We don't have a film that initially appears uh, a straight line. But it's not until you actually get to the end that you realise that you haven't been going in a straight line. Can you explain what I mean by that, Duke? Again, this is you've been warned, spoiler alert, so this is us getting right into it now. But essentially the film starts at the Gaslight Club, I think, in Greenwich yep. Village, which was a sort of uh, a kind of famous sort of folk club. Um, so it starts there and... Uh, Lewin basically makes the offhand comment to the, the club owner like oh I'm sorry about last night and the guy's like ah don't worry about it you were a real mess but your your friend's waiting outside so Lewin's like oh my friend he goes outside to this alleyway and he basically gets beaten up by a cowboy and you don't really understand why apart from maybe Lewin's a bit of an asshole you know sorry if there's kids listening but you know that's he, he is essentially that and you kind of just maybe cast it off as that and once you we go through the whole story and we get towards the last sort of i don't know 15 
15, 20 minutes, you then realize what caused him to say, I'm sorry about last night, oh, I was a real mess, and why he got his ass kicked in the alley, and that's essentially where the film kind of ends, but obviously there's a whole other thing in between those two moments, but literally the story goes full circle, which I personally don't see, I don't see that a lot in any other film I kind of watch. You, see, you, you tend to maybe find it in Coen Brothers films a bit more, but anything else not unless it's i don't know maybe even like a chris nolan film where it's just weird and trippy and you have to watch it 30 times to fully understand it but you know very rarely does it ever come full circle so i mean i, I personally i enjoyed the story and i mean we had a we had a brief discussion um beforehand as well but there are very few uh, likable people in the film now that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in it is a complete douchebag he's just Sometimes people are angry at other people. Some people are just really cheeky. Some people just don't care. Some people are just, are actually really quite kind and caring towards Lewin especially, but there's not really much in the way of like character development, I don't think, I would say. You know, like the, so basically the middle-aged couple in, in the film, nice enough, very kind. They put up with Lewin crashing. You know, they've got a really nice apartment and stuff like that. And they, they take him in because they're obviously big fans of Wooden's music and stuff like that but you know there isn't really much in the way of character development for them it's just kind of like oh they're nice folk and that's that's kind of kind of it really so um and I know you've said previously that you know characterization and the characters within a film they, that's quite a big thing so how did you how did you find it with everyone being relatively unlikable characterization is a big thing for me and you have to have people that you can attach yourself to you have to have people that you can sympathize with or empathize with for me on on film and you have to have your for every protagonist you have you have to have an antagonist and Llewellyn's to me he's not he's not a hero he is a villain he he is the antagonist of his own yeah. story but he's he seems happy with that because he he has an unwillingness to change and that was frustrating for me because I couldn't get behind him I couldn't go with him on his on yeah. his journey because for every bad thing that happened I knew that one he was yeah. the cause of it and two he had no drive or willingness and that's one of the frustrations that Gene yeah. has Gene played by Carrie Mulligan and Carrie Mulligan I think is a fantastic actress I've followed her work ever since ever since she was in the Weeping Angels episode of Doctor Who to Great Gatsby but in this film she plays Gene who is wound up so tightly if you stuck a lump of coal up her ass, if you took it out in two weeks, you'd have a diamond. <laughs> She's irritated yeah. by Llewellyn's lack of ambition to reach his full potential. Who won the lottery tonight? Huh? Oh, I'm staying at Alcody's. So, when do you want to do the half The abortion? The sooner the better. Okay. I'll see when the guy can do it then. The guy? I hope it's a doctor. Yeah, 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 he's a doctor. You got the money? Yes, I have the money, don't worry. With you, I worry. Well, you shouldn't. Yes, I should. God knows you never do. You just let other people at your method of birth control. Oh, please don't start with the double condoms again. Do you ever think about the future at all? <sighs> the future? You mean like flying cars? Hotels on the moon? 
Tang. And this is why you're fucked. No, it's why you're fucked. You're just trying to blueprint a future. Move to the suburbs with Jim, have kids. That's bad. If that's what music is for you, a way to get to that place, then yeah, it's, it's, it's a little careerist. And it's a little square. And it's a little sad. I'm sad? You're the one who's not getting anywhere. You don't want to get anywhere. Me and Jim try. Well, I, I want to. We try. You sleep on the couch. It's a bad thing to throw in my face, man. You know, you don't want to go anywhere. And that's why all the same shit is going to keep happening to you because you want it to. Is that why? Yes. And also because you're an asshole who sleeps with other people's women. Let's not forget that. Well, you're being pretty kind to yourself now, aren't you? Well, who's catching you on tonight? I told you, Al Cody's. You don't listen. But she's not a nice person herself. She has sex with Llewellyn and has to have an abortion, demeans him looks down on him, treats him like he is the lowest of the low, but it takes two to tangle. You know, she's just as unlikable. I mean, she has sex with the owner of the yeah. gaslight just so that she can get on stage. And it's a comment that, again, you comes full circle because the owner of the, the gaslight actually makes the comment about how he'd like to have mm -hmm. sex with you when he, she's on stage performing with her yeah. husband, play a, a gym played mm -hmm. by Justin Timberlake. And next thing when we see her performing as a solo artist, the manager makes the, the comment, the offhand comment, well, if you want to play in yeah. the gaslight, you know? And that, so that's how she got that. She is very unlikable. There's no motivation coming from, from anywhere for, for Llewellyn. He gets no man motivation from his manager. He gets no mo motivation from his, his friends. Even his, his fans who he crashes as a last resort, the, the Gorfines, seem to be irritated by him because they want him to perform little solo pieces while they're having dinner. But Lewin just accepts mm. all this and he just continues to live his life like this. And even any vague attempt, not to rectify his life, but to run away from his life, like he, he tries to re-enlist in the Merchant Navy and that goes completely awry because his sister ends up throwing out all of his, his yeah. papers, which he needs in order to get onto the boat. He can't even get that right. But he was he was the one who told his sister to throw yeah. the box out that all these papers were in. So he's got nobody but himself to blame. So when you when you first meet him and he's singing quite a what seems like a very heartfelt folk song, yeah. the Hangman, which is a Dave Van Ronk yes. yep. song, I think. And we realise at the end of the movie that this is really his last yeah. performance. And we start with the Hangman song and we end with another song. It's almost like Lewin's saying to people, string me up, yeah. I've given up. I'm done. He walks outside, he's beaten up by the cowboy who is the husband of a performer that Lewin accosted when she was on stage. Lewin is kind of left in the gutter as, as the cab drives away. And the narrative goes full circle. We've went on his journey and we'll, we'll discuss his journey later on. The film ends with him in, in the gutter. There's no redemption. There is nothing for him to look forward to. This is not a happy ending. Some people might say that's much more realist and I don't necessarily want a happy ending no. for every film, but he ends up there if he's mm -hmm. on record and I couldn't sympathise with him. I couldn't get on board mm -hmm. with him. So by the time that the film ends, Lewin just gets what he deserves. Pretty much. I, w I would agree agree with most of what you said, actually. You don't have to. You can no, no, I know, I know. You know, everything you've said does... You know, it makes perfect sense, and I see exactly where where you're coming from. I'm I'm just trying to think of the specific reason why I, you know, I mean, I, I do quite enjoy this film, and I've seen it two or three times, and 
Yeah, like Luan is like quite an unlikable character, but I don't know if it's just maybe because I, I distance myself from it and I just kind of enjoy the events that actually unfold, even though some of them are really uncomfortable, like when the Gorfines ask him to play and he ends up kind of just blowing up because he's clearly, throughout this film, he's clearly depressed by the fact that his partner took his own life. Did, did they ever say how long how long it had been? Was it quite a recent thing or was it a couple of years? Or I don't know if they ever definitively said in the film how long it I don't been. think they definitively said it. it was long enough for him to get a solo album out because this film is about him plugging his solo album and it's the first material that he has released because he was always a double act solo act yeah now now used to what work with a cat every time he'd play a C major he'd puke a hairball I used to have a partner what happened Threw himself off the George Washington Bridge. Well, I don't blame him. I couldn't take it either, having to play Jimmy Crack Corn every night. Oh, pardon me for saying so. That's pretty stupid, isn't it? George Washington Bridge. You throw yourself off the Brooklyn Bridge, traditionally. George Washington Bridge. Who does that? But then he makes he makes the point about when he's with his manager because he's expecting his album to, to do well. Mm -hmm. He even makes a point, I don't know why he expects it to do well, because he, he says that when he was a double act, they weren't even that well known. No, they weren't listened to then. So it's no wonder that he's at his solo album. If he, if, he, if he wasn't well known as a duo, how is he going to be well known as a solo artist? Exactly. How we doing? We're doing great. Really? New record's doing well? Ah, uh, how we doing? Not so hot, I gotta be honest. Ginny, where's Cincinnati? What? Cincinnati, it's not in here. It should be in there. It's not in here, I'm telling you. Is it- Cincinnati? Yeah. I got it. What? I got it. You got Cincinnati? Yeah, you want it? Could I have it? Should I bring it in? Yeah. Do you owe me something? You have to owe me something. I wish. People need time, you know, get to know you, buy you as a solo act, even know you're a solo act. Cincinnati is not good. That's it, right? Yeah, this is it, God help Nobody me. knew us when we were a duo. It's not like me and Mike were ever a big act. It's not a big re-education for the public. Mel? Mel! How you doing, kid? No, that's that's a very good point, and to be honest, the for me the actual the overall story it had a it had an element of aimlessness, and not that like not as if nothing happened completely. Obviously, things happened. It is a story, but the things like the Gorfine's cat getting out and going missing, and Lewin trying to get it back. The issue or the sort of side story he has with Jean, played by Carrie Morgan, with the kid who she swears down is definitely without a doubt ruins and it turns out it could potentially well she says it could potentially be Jim's but it's a you know there's a good chance it could be Owens and then not until later on you find out it could also be the club owners like it's yeah that when when, when you've got that that fact that comes up Lewin's paying for the the abortion Lewin's taking all the the blame and she's just as despicable she's self-centered she's out for herself does she really love, love her husband 
who knows? She's had sex with three people that we know of. So she's probably had sex with more than three people if she's trying to do this to elevate her career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember what point I was going to <laughs> You just wanted to get that back in there that Carrie Mulligan, you're a terrible person in this film. You're probably <laughs> a very, very nice person in real life, but. Yeah. You don't know if it's mine? No. How would I know? So it could be Jim's. Yes, asshole! Wait, you don't want it either way, to be clear. To be clear, asshole, you fucking asshole, I want very much to have it if it's Jim's. That's what I want. But since I don't know, you not only fuck things up by fucking me and maybe making me pregnant, but even if it's not yours, I can't know that, so I have to get rid of what might be a perfectly fine baby, a baby I want, because everything you touch turns to shit! Like King Midas' idiot brother. Well, okay. I see. You know a doctor, right? Yes. From when? Whatever, Diane? Yes. And you'll pay for it? Yes. <sighs> Don't tell Jim, obviously. I should have had you wear double condoms. Well, we shouldn't have done it in the first place, but if you ever do it again, which is a favor to women everywhere, you should not. But if you do, you should be wearing condom on condom and then wrap it in electrical tape. You should just walk around always inside a great big condom because you are shit. Okay. You should not be in contact with any living thing being shit. Have you ever heard the expression, it takes two to tango? Fuck you. Well, I could say we should talk about this when you're less angry, but that would be... That'd be... When would that be? Fuck you. I miss Mike. Can I ask you for a favor? You're joking. It's not for me, it's for the Gorefines. Dick cat got out. Could you leave the fire escape window open? It's winter. Just enough for the cat to squeeze back in, it could come back. To our apartment? It was there like six hours. Why would it come back there? I don't know. I'm not a fucking cat. Think about it. I lost that fucking cat. I feel bad about it. That's what you feel bad about? Yeah. Like, I mean, like I said, I think the original point I was trying to make is that I've, I was still able to enjoy the film, but it's maybe potentially because I was able to distance myself and I, I took the small events or the smaller stories as they just kind of happened and I just kind of I went along for the ride but I, I, under, I, I completely get where you're coming from because Lewin is both the protagonist and the antagonist like he is he gets in his own way he, de- he I don't think he has delusions of grandeur if that makes sense but he definitely seems to think that his music or his album should have done better and either it wasn't promoted well or it just wasn't received well but then you obviously find out that when he was in a double act with his partner, nobody really listened to them then. So there's no yeah, there's it, no reason anyone would listen to him whilst he's a solo act, but he still expects her to be money or something. There's, yeah, I think that's the, the, the word there is the expectation. Lewin expects the world, but never does anything to actually achieve it. Yeah. And he's never going to be good enough. If I'm thinking even about the, the look of the movie, the film itself was Oscar nominated for, for best sound and cinematography. Okay? Oh, okay. In terms of cinematography, they were shooting the movie at the 
tail end or the, the start of spring but it's actually set in winter so that's quite a hard feat in itself because in spring you've got new life and then you've got bright colours that you would associate with, with spring. Winter, everything should be dull and therefore they're filming with lots of muted browns and greys. Yeah. They took, the cinematographer took the album cover of Bob Dylan's Free Will, Freewheeling uh-huh. and he basically said this is what I the film needs to look like. Right. So... They used filter, uh, filters and low-key lighting. And actually, in the editing process, they, they, put, they put a muted brown layer over it. So ah. the film is filled with these browns and greys. It, it generally looks quite depressing and morbid anyway. Yeah. The, so the characters ref- reflect that. Mm-hmm. This is a film that is billed as a tragic comedy i didn't always get the comedy i just i saw more of the the tragedy mm. and the music's good the music is is produced by uh, t-bone burnett and marcus mumford who actually is in the film as lewin's deceased partner yeah uh, marcus mumford is the husband of carrie mulligan oh, right. so you got all these kind of connections so he produced the music as well and then Justin Timberlake did some stuff. But even with these positives, it's like, right, it needs to look if we're dealing with tragedy, at least the new look more we're depressing. Tick the box on that, we've got muted yeah. browns and greys. When I think of folk music, I don't necessarily think of all this depressing music. No. You open a film with Hangman and and then the songs seem to get even more you know, darker. I'm not sure that it is a 100% reflection of the genre. I don't know if that's just me and my lack of experience with folk music. Folk music to me is upbeat, it's uplifting, it carries a serious message, it can be political, it can be protesting. And I mean, to go full circle again, when we actually reach the end of the movie, Lewin, who has not achieved anything in his life, comes off stage and who is playing on stage? It's Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, yeah. Is that then marking the start of, do you know, that stuff's not really folk music. This is the start of the real folk. I mean, folk music's been around for years prior to this. Mm-hmm. But the music in the film, apart from one song, just reflects this depressing nature. I wanted to be uplifted by the music. Yeah, yeah. And I was only uplifted by Please Mr. Kennedy. <laughs> Which is a, a brilliant song. And that, that was with, uh, they recorded that with Adam Driver as well, didn't they? Yes. Yeah, and Adam Driver actually, not necessarily well known at that time. No, has, not yet. Has, has made several films and been around, but Adam Driver for me is one of the standouts because I laughed at that song the song itself is a compilation of other folk songs the academy were going to nominate this for best song all oh, right but they couldn't because of copyright issues because the lyrics are actually taken from several different folk songs all oh, right okay right so because it wasn't an original thing then yeah yeah but that song it's fun it's uplifting it's it's in context of the time mm-hmm. and Lewin actually rips it apart because when he's when he's asked to record by his friend Jim, Justin Timberlake, he actually says at one point, I'm happy for the gig, but who wrote this? <laughs> and, and, and Jim's like, it was me. But of course, that's part of the story, isn't it? That he is the guitarist and 
the backing vocals on what transpires to be an incredible hit song, but he doesn't take the royalties because he wants no. money straight away and he loses out on that. So it's just another form of, of self-destruction. So Pretty much. So there's definitely a tragic element. Oh yeah, the, it's plastered all over it. Second, please. Please, Mr. Kennedy. Up on. I don't want to go. Don't show me in the outer space. Oh, please. Please, Mr. Kennedy. Up on. I don't want to go. Don't show me in the outer space. I sweat when they stuff me in the pressure suits. Rubble, helmet, flash, boarding boots. Nowhere of there Outer. in gravity. Space. I need to breathe. Outer. Don't need to be a space. Reading me loud and clear, oh please, Mr. Kennedy. Uh -oh. I don't wanna go. Don't show me out of school. Oh please, Mr. Kennedy. Uh -oh. I don't wanna please, go. Don't show me out of space. I'm six foot two, so perhaps you'll tell me how to fit into a five capsule. I won't be known as part of century. If The Coen Brothers, they, if we look at the original genres, if we go back and we talk about the Greeks, the, the original playwrights, we have two genres that come out and that's why we have the comedy and tragedy masks. The Coen Brothers are renowned for putting comedy and tragedy together. Yeah. And I just felt that this film missed the mark on the comedy. And it was just all tragic. Mm. It made me feel after watching it just, oh, well, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I have to admit, it, it got my anxiety up a little bit, especially where he makes a trip to Chicago and, you know, is kind of left at the side of the road and, you know, yeah. has that, has John Goodman as Ronald Turner, the sort of jazz musician that's like addicted to heroin and Johnny Five played by Garrett uh, Headland. He gets taken away. Like that sort of stuff got my anxiety up because that happens I don't know maybe about two thirds three quarters of the way through the film um, yes. and th things are you know by this point nothing's getting better nothing's getting easier things are still just as difficult and miserable and sort of funny I find it quite funny that you know John Goodman's character again you know um, very unlikable uh, Ronald Turner when he's not high out of his face is like uh, talking about jazz and how great a musician he is and you know the different stories of playing in different places he keeps like jabbing uh, Lewin with his uh, cane and then Lewin just has enough and he was like, oh, I've, I've just wondered, you know, that cane, do you think it would fit all the way up your ass or would it just be, you know, would there still be a bit hanging out the bottom? Would that cane fit all the way up your ass or would a little bit stay sticking out? Okay. Okay. 
Except threats and intimidation won't work with me. You want to know why? This would interest you. I studied Santeria and certain other things that squares like you would call the black arts due to lack of understanding from Chano Pozo in New Orleans. You say you'll mess me up? I don't have to make those childish threats. I do my thing, and one day you wake up wondering why do I have this pain in my side? Or maybe it won't even be that specific. Maybe it's why is nothing going right for me? My life is a big bowl of shit. I don't remember making this big bowl of shit. Meantime, Roland Turner is a thousand miles away, laughing his ass off. Think about that, Elwin. In this car, bad manners won't work. And I find that kind of funny, you know, it's a bit of a garish joke, but he's obviously had enough of being, like, constantly prodded in the back of the shoulder, because... Yes. You know, you're they're essentially acting as like uh, the chauffeurs almost for this guy just because just to get to Chicago. So you know, I found I found little things like that funny, and the the comment that Wynn makes to the the soldier that's staring with Jim and Jean at the same time. You know, he's he's quite he's he's like a really nice guy, very polite, but because he seems quite disciplined and almost quite robotic. You know, Wounds like, so what do you do now? Do you just power down or what? You know, the thing, things like that I found yeah. kind of funny. Again, he's trying to make jokes at the expense of people. He's, you know, he's quite obnoxious and stuff. But, you know, things like that were, I found kind of funny, but these jokes are kind of few and far between you know like as you were mentioning the sort of tragedy comedic element the the comedy is it's definitely unbalanced like it's far yeah. more it's far more things going wrong and never going right or when whether it's self-inflicted or not and the jokes are kind of like oh here's a here's a bit of a funny one here here you go here you go and yeah i i would totally agree but it done okay at the box office it, it made say uh, let's see it made 32 $319 globally and this was on a budget of 11 million from Studio Canal so that's that's not bad that that's pretty good going that's almost making what you know that's three times what it costs to make which is all right I guess it's okay and when you're when you're dealing with filmmakers like the Coens they are not necessarily out for big numbers no they've made films that have made their money back they've made films that have made no money whatsoever and they have had incredible hits that have went on to win multiple oscars yeah this film with its cast with its setting with its music i feel it should have done better yeah but having having seen it i understand why it didn't it's mm. it's not necessarily got a huge unique selling point i mean oscar isaac he's played guitar since he was 12 he learned all the the music uh, there's a great documentary actually on the the blu-ray that shows you the recording and, and making of the music in one of the last kind of analog studios in uh, new york Ooh. which is overseen by by t-bone burnett so there's a lot of emphasis that goes into the music and i'm not always convinced that the music becomes a big part of it i know that you you told me previously you you know you were drawn to this initially because of the music yeah and i know that you're a big big music fan i follow folk music i follow british folk music but 
again, like I said before, it's slightly it's slightly different compared to this. I mean, I I was certainly raised on uh, Dylan. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad playing uh, Dylan on a on a Sunday afternoon and listening to things like even these protest songs like the Hurricane yeah. and the times they are changing. All of these things that are very poetic, but also kind of upbeat. So the music was stripped away for me. Music as well is based on the music of Dave Van Ronk. I mean, the album title, the title of the movie, yeah. the look. Uh, I mean, if you actually look at a picture of Dave Van Ronk, they've, they've styled Llewellyn very much on his look with the curly hair, with the beard. I wanted to like this movie because of the music, because of what you'd said about the music, eh? Yeah. And I've listened, I've seen uh, Niz Lope, great British folk act, unfortunately no longer together. I've seen them three times. The music carries a certain beauty to it. It shows the pained reality of Llewellyn Davies. His situation, his realisation that he is going nowhere. Hence why you've got quite obvious music choices then, because... You've got Hangman at the start, and then you go back to the end, and we don't have Hangman as the final song. We have Fear Thee Well, mm-hmm. which is a famous folk song. The writer's actually unknown, but it's recorded. Uh, Dave Van Rock recorded it. Bob Dylan recorded it. There's been loads of covers off of it. Right. Okay? But obviously, you start with Llewellyn, you know, Hang Me, and then Fear Thee Well. It's just not what I wanted from the music it's spread quite thin even with this inverted structure we start as we end with the gaslight the character of the cowboy that beats him up that is supposed to be the husband of the woman yeah. that was on stage yeah. and that character is based on folk singer Gene Ritchie ah, okay. who actually did covers of Hangman and we get this kind of like episodic insight into Llewellyn with these snippets of music. It's a week in his life but actually it feels like months yeah, that makes yeah, it feels like a lot longer. I think it feels like a lot more time passes during the course of the story, but it's it's not really. It's just been a very yeah. busy week. Characters come and go out of Llewellyn's life. That's often a formula for the Coen brothers. Characters come and go in and out of the plots. Some very memorable ones often played by John Goodman, like you talked about, yeah. as the, the jazz heroin addict. But for when you've got this this kind of beautiful, poetic, painful music, and then all these unlikable characters, except the Adonis, that is Adam Driver, <laughs> they come and go, and I just wasn't interested. I didn't feel they gave me insights. Lewin is dealing with loneliness and depression. Yeah. And those are two themes from the movie. But like he, at the end, is left on the sidewalk, out in the cold. That's who I am. I'm, I'm left out in the cold, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm bored. I know. Yeah, well, it's... Counter-argue. <laughs> no, well, I mean, like I said, I mean, I'm not going to agree with you because obviously everyone, us especially, but we've obviously got different takes on different films and I'm wondering if it's potentially because I didn't look at it closely enough. Maybe I didn't want to look at it closely enough. I mean, like I said, this is the second or third time going through it, watching the film over God knows how many years, probably since it came out. I'm sure I went to see to see it at the cinema when it did come out. But I mean I enjoyed I enjoyed the music because it was it was catchy and it was different because you had things like Please Mr. Kennedy and then you had things like Dink's song and Fairly well, and uh, you know, so there was, 
even though it was supposed to all be kind of different folk songs, they, they had sort of different sub-genres because it was like the sort of acapella guys in the sort of um, Shetland sweaters or whatever that, you know. Yes. So there was that and then there was, you know, Wound doing his thing with his acoustic guitar and then there was duos and then there was slightly more kind of funny songs like Please Mr. Kennedy. So I, I enjoyed the soundtrack because it was relatively varied, but, it, you know, it did... it. The songs came from the film, but it's not as if the songs... It's not as if you needed to watch the film in order for the songs to be good. So maybe having them with no context would potentially work differently. So you know that Please Mr. Kennedy was recorded and you know that the story is that Owen needs money right then and there, so he doesn't take out royalties, so he ends up missing out on a big opportunity to actually make money mm. like he's after i don't i wouldn't say at any point that that is his main drive like i think he just wants to do something with folk music and be recognized as a folk musician but he, he's obnoxious and he's a little bit arrogant but i don't think at any point he really sees himself as being the be-all end-all folk musician and everyone should kind of grovel at his feet and you know he knows what's what kind of thing yes that's that's an interesting way to look at it i'm gonna counter you with you mentioned obviously that he's there's a sense of arrogance for me when i look at his character i see someone who has a sense of entitlement ah uh, true and yeah and he hasn't he hasn't put the graft in he hasn't put the work in I think he feels that he has. But he actually hasn't. Yeah, and I'm going to say something that it'll be interesting to see what your your reaction is, okay? And, it, and again, it, it goes back to my kind of belief in character. Oscar Isaac's performance, it might be what he needs to do on paper. It might be what he needs to do in terms of what the script literally says. But it's not what I need him to do. Ah, uh, okay. Right. And that's where my no sympathy, poor choices, so I can't root for him. Yeah. His unwillingness to change. I go back to what we were talking about before, about this idea of redemption. Not every film needs redemption, but he's given so many chances. Yeah. And there was one there there is one that I wanted him to make the right choice and it frustrated me. And it is when he is traveling home from Boston, having been told the news, look, if you shave your beard, if you look less like a, a beatnik, and this is F. Murray Abraham's producer yeah. that he goes to see, who just basically says, you're all right, you're nothing special. Maybe if you performed with other people. Well, he had been performing with other people, and he wasn't special. He wasn't special by a solo artist, so he's not special. So he's traveling home, and he has already found out at this point that his previous girlfriend did not terminate the pregnancy that he that he paid for. And he comes to a turnoff on the motorway, and he is given the opportunity of redemption or of just doing something positive by taking the turnoff and going and seeing the child that he never knew and maybe reuniting him and giving him something. Yep. But he looks at the sign and he looks at it and then he passes it. And he doesn't, he doesn't take the turnoff and from 
you know that that's like three quarters of the way through the film by then that was frustrating there's not really much to grab hold of by that point if he wasn't willing to do something for himself in terms of being something or living something that he didn't know about he, he just does what Lewin does and he runs away from it yep Pretty much. And I think probably sort of continuing on that point, I think towards the end of the film, not not that you for me personally, you don't you don't become Jean, but you can definitely start to see why she's so annoyed and frustrated at him because I think she understands the opportunities that have potentially come up and you know that have passed him by and he is he is almost purposely chosen not to go with them so by the end of the film you're kind of like you know you, you maybe weren't rooting for him before but you definitely you know you're really fed up of him by the end because you're like you have had this opportunity you've had this you've had this but you actively go out your way to not do it whether it is because of your ego or because it's not the way you pictured it in your head uh, yeah i think you i think you grow only become more and more frustrated with uh and as it goes on because of things like missed opportunities that he's you know he, he should he you know especially after boston when he's coming back to new york and you know it, it seems that he's went out all that way and you know it's not looking like it's going to work out potentially doing folk music so why not do the you know the honest thing and try and reconnect with the son that you now know potentially stays in i think it was akron i think that was the name of the place mm-hmm. and yeah he uh, he actively avoids that as well i made a mistake it's not boston it's chicago, chicago. yep okay chicago Right, that was my fault. Okay, no worries. So to go back to my original point there, if I'm wanting that one piece of hope from his character to latch onto it or to for him to do something that is going to get me more engaged, and he doesn't, he doesn't do it. What were you wanting from Llewellyn Davies's character? Uh, to be honest, I don't think I ever actually. I don't. I don't want anything from him. I think. I. I think I just felt so sympathetic for him, and I just wanted things to kind of eventually turn out okay. Because usually you watch these films and people go through the trials and tribulations, and then usually, mm-hmm. either whether it's in the last five minutes of the film, it's like, oh, you know, you should speak to a buddy of mine, and you know, you get a very quick montage of oh, everything worked out in the end. So I think I was kind of holding out for that, and or maybe even because. Oh, what what was the runtime of the the whole film actually? Um, it it's an hour and forty six minutes. Right. Okay. So it's not you know it's not insanely long, but it's a wee bit longer. But even rewatching the film, I thought that after he went to Chicago, that it actually wrapped up completely, forgetting that he tries to go back to the merchant navy and stuff. I think even by the point you know him being left at the side of the road and having that moment with the 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 Gorfine's cat which turns out it's not the Gorfine's cat and you know even John Goodman in the back of the car I was just kind of like oh man that's really rough and that's really quite heavy but that might be the low point and he'll get to Chicago and you know things will be okay and then he plays he plays a song and kind of gets shot down given an opportunity but kind of shot down for doing stuff on his own and it doesn't work out so i think i all you know throughout the film i was just kind of had hope that things would be okay things would eventually work out that he would he maybe gave up all these opportunities or passed them by because he was holding out for something greater and then something greater happened but it, it doesn't with nothing actually happening then by the end yeah w- how does that leave you 
Oh, gutted. Um, absolutely gutted. Because I, th- I think when things like that happen in real life, where opportunities pass you by, whether you know it or not, it's, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, you look back and you're like, ah, mm-hmm. oh, damn it. Or there goes that opportunity. And that's yes. there's definitely a case of that when you... You don't even have to put yourself in a wooden shoes. You just have to watch the film and you're like, oh, mate. Like, you know, especially, you know, I think one of the really poignant moments is when Owen goes back to the Gorfines because he's got nowhere else to stay. But, he, you know, he wants to apologize to, I think, Lillian. Yeah, well, I... Uh, played by uh, Robin Bartlett. He's very apologetic, like, you know, I'm sorry, I blew up sort of thing. But he, he speaks to a couple of friends that the Gorfines have over and they're like, oh, we heard that Please Mr. Kennedy song. That's amazing. That's going to be a hit. That's really, really funny. And you can just see in his face that it's a really stupid song. He might not have enjoyed doing it, but it made money. It was going to make money, but because he needed to get paid right then and there. Because I think at that yeah. point, he's still after money to pay for... Jean's abortion. Lewin, why don't you why don't you give us a song? Oh yes, please. He's very good. Joe should hear you. And Marty no. Of course Marty and Jan. I'm getting my silver tone, you get to play it if and only if you sing. Right, yeah, okay. I can tell this is one of those things where I keep saying no and you think I'm just asking you to beg more. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Right. Well, look, I'm not a trained poodle. I thought singing was a joyous expression of the soul. Um, this is, this one's early, Joe should like it. If I had wings or a dove, I'd fly up the river to the one I What? What is that? What are you doing? Well, it's Mike's part. Don't do that. It's Mike's part. I know what it is. Don't do that. Oh, you know what? This is bullshit. I'm sorry. This is... I don't do this, okay? I do this for a living. It's not a... It's not a fucking parlor game. Lewin, please, that's unfair to lose. This is bullshit. I don't ask you over for dinner and then suggest you give a lecture on the peoples of Mesoamerica or whatever your pre-Columbian shit is. This is my job. This is how I pay the fucking rent. Lewin, that's not... This is a loving I'm home. I'm a fucking professional. And you know what? Fuck Mike's part. <laughs> it's okay, Lillian. This is... I can't be in this room. Stay in this room. <laughs> well, she... She doesn't have to leave. I'm leaving, obviously. Sorry, I fucked up your evening. Thank you for the moussaka. This is not our cat. What? Of course that's your cat. Oh my god. It's not even male. Where's its scrotum? Lewin? Where's its scrotum? So, you know, he's needing the money immediately. You know, he's kind of... Which he didn't actually need. No, which again, you know, there's... It's kind of frustrating because some of the things, some of the bad things that happen, the tragedies that happen in the film 
are 100% Lewin's fault. They're completely self-inflicted. And then sometimes they were inflicted, but he tried to fix it, but then it was out of his control, like the his previous partner not getting the abortion. But then he had the opportunity later to potentially reconcile and didn't. By the end of the film, I, I just I was quite emotionally drained and I just kind of felt bad for Lewin. There is a certain just desserts in the fact that he gets beaten up yeah. for his actions. Because what you see then is a broken man and he's finally been knocked down. And he's constantly, he is, he is actually constantly being knocked down. But I think by the end, we, we physically see him just down on his feet yeah because you mentioned when he goes back to the gore finds now that is a scene to me that he goes and he apologizes because he has no other options he, yeah he, he's begging he's begging them to stay so already he's on his knees and he's doing something that he doesn't want to do but this this is how he lives his life he's a survivalist Yep. And when he's already on his knees he then gets told oh you uh, you must be happy with that royalty money. And you just get he just gets booted even further down. Yeah, it's frustrating, and there's perhaps not much to work with. I mean, I would I would argue, and it's it's not it's rare that I actually do this. That as writers of the material and directors of the film, the blame for me lies with the Coens. They have made a character and a film that is very difficult to get into. Mm -hmm. Their idea of loneliness and depression, which they have done several times before, has been dealt with ten times better in previous films like Barton Fink and A Serious Man. Now, I'll come back to A Serious Man later, but they have not helped, I think... Get an audience into this film because of I mean you you now rely on word of mouth and social media and this film critically exceptionally well received and we will come back to the reviews but yet the audience didn't find it so you've already highlighted that in the financial side of things and for for directors again this is where I kind of struggle is I know that they're not necessarily doing this for finances they're wanting to tell a story but. Tell a story about somebody that I can get behind. Yeah. And tell a story about these themes in a way that is just not so bleak. Because the way that I look at this inverted narrative, the beginning starts with the end. Is this a loop for Llewellyn? Mm. I mean, do you do you see do you see the ending that he's going to get back up? He's now at the lowest he's ever been. He's going to get back up and he's going to smash it. Or is he stuck in this continual loop? Does he have to... Is this his purgatory? Does he have to go through this week after week after week? This is his punishment for who he is and the way he lives his life. Yeah, I, th I think because essentially the entire journey that we've been through by the end, you know, he's at, he's, in, he's literally in the gutter. He's at his lowest point. But that's where the film started. So to me, it just looks like he'll potentially end up in the exact same place the following week if there was a yeah inside Lone Davis 2 electric boogaloo or whatever <laughs> I don't think he would really kind of change it's like you said at the start it almost seems like he enjoys like butting his head against the wall for whatever reason Poppy will let you play tomorrow pick up a couple bucks no he won't I was there less than a month ago he will I asked him well thank you it was a uh, very nice of you but um I'm out. I'm done. 
going back to the Merchant Marine. Well, that's it? This could be good for you tomorrow. Playing the gaslight for the 400th time for the fucking basket. Actually, you'd have to split the basket. <laughs> There's another act. But the Times is gonna be there. Oh, the Times. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, thanks for the thought. But uh, it's not going anywhere. And I'm tired. You're tired? I'm so fucking tired. I thought I just needed a night's sleep, but it's... It's more than that. But thank you. For trying. I love you. Come on. There's an unwillingness there to change, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. You've got this this journey, and this is what the Coen brothers do well in their films. They take us through their characters on a journey. Now, I know that you haven't seen it, but they, they have dealt with folk music before in Old Brother, Where Thou, oh, okay. which stars George Clooney, uh, John Turturro, uh, Tim Blake, Nelson, and is an adaptation of you, uh, the Odyssey by Homer and it, that becomes quite an obvious reference in the film because we have John Goodman appears in that uh, as a cyclops he's got one eye and he's uh, in the KKK as well and we have all these kind of very big otherworldly characters and those characters go on a journey here we have Llewellyn who goes on a journey we also have the cat who goes on a journey and the cat is the cat's called Ulysses yeah and Ulysses is actually, that's the Roman name for Odysseus, and Odysseus is the one that goes on the Odyssey in Homer. Ah, right, okay. So you've got this, perhaps the story evolves more around the, the journey of the, the cat than the journey of Llewellyn. Llewellyn actually at one point stops outside a cinema that's showing, a, I think it's a Disney movie, The Incredible Journey. Yeah. came out in 63 and it's about a cat and two dogs. And it's about how they make their way home. Both Lewin and the cat go on these incredible journeys. The only difference being the cat makes it home. Yeah. And Lewin doesn't. And he's got no home, he's got no hope, he's got no future. So it's very bleak. I mean, does the film have a have a plot other than this bleak journey? Because I know that the Coens said in an interview that when they were writing this, or when they were filming it, they actually threw in the cat at the last minute. Oh, right. Because they were concerned that there wasn't always an obvious plot to follow. So therefore you have this idea that Lewin has to rescue the cat. Or does the cat become a symbol for, for Lewin? Oh, yeah. Apparently the cat was a nightmare because when you're working, they always say don't work with animals or children when they're making movies. And cats, by nature, are they please themselves, whereas dogs are people pleasers. So dogs are much easier to train. Uh, so jo Joel Cohen actually said that the, the cat trainer warned them of that when they were introducing the cat. Oh. And they said that the cat just did not do what they wanted to do, which is why Lewin actually walks around with the cat for the majority of the time in his arm and it's it's just a coincidence apparently that dave van ronk has the cat in his arm on his album cover because oh. supposedly the the coins didn't even notice he was carrying a cat good god you've got a nod to previous movies 
you've got the folk music element. I would say the folk music's actually much better in Old Brother Where Now because it's the folk music that I'm actually more inclined to listen to. Yeah. The the upbeat, the fun. This epic journey just it goes somewhere for the cat, but does it go does it go anywhere for Lewin? No. Are are we are we agreed that he is just stuck in this continual loop of self destruction or or is there hope? I think I, I had hope for him. Definitely watching the film the first time through, and now I know how it ends. It's kind of like that's 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 probably why I enjoyed the film in the first place was because I always hoped that things would kind of be okay, and then after you kind of see the end and you sort of realise how overall that you know the overall bleakness of the film can sort of bring you down. Um, I mean, I, I'm not. A, I don't personally believe that you know if things are going bad for me that I should think, oh well, you know. Could, you know, I'm probably doing better than someone else. I, I'm not personally a subscriber of that belief system because I would rather that no one was, you know, <laughs> struggling and suffering too badly. But, you know, that's such as life. And watching a film like that, I don't personally feel better at the end of it because I'm kind of like, oh, well, you know, I'm not a failed folk singer in the 1960s that's getting my ass handed to me left, right and centre um, by life. But instead I'm thinking to myself, oh, come on, man, you know, you can, you know, keep going, you know, things will eventually get better. You're putting, you're playing these gigs, you're going out of your way to travel to Chicago, you know, things will hopefully pick up, you know, you're you're actively trying to change things, but at the same time, he's not trying to actively change things. He's not, yeah. he's not growing, he's not learning, he's just butting his head up against the same wall repeatedly. And Am I right to, to, to blame the filmmakers here or am i am i missing something or am i being overly harsh because the thing is that i don't i don't want to hold back and i don't want to come across like i'm being like overly really negative I, I have watched this movie officially now four times I, I wouldn't say that was the case um for yourself because i think you've potentially seen the film more times than than I have and like you said you've watched previous Coen Brothers films and they've grown on you or they've gotten better with multiple watchings but this one is the exception to the rule and it hasn't and that is potentially down to the filmmakers because you know it, it, it made its money and then some but it didn't break any kind of records it had a particular look and a particular feel but Mm. Um, and you know people people were probably entertained you know i don't know if you have to have a very specific sense of humor but there, even in that statement i've just said there isn't a great deal of opportunity for things like jokes and sense of humor you know it's it's loon being obnoxious it's the ridiculousness of carrie mulligan's tightly wound character it's the sleaziness of the the club owner it's uh, john yeah. goodman you know it's it, there are different characters and they're all different for their own reasons most of them are pretty unlikable but they're all quite fleeting like you said you know like adam driver's yeah. character and stuff you know johnny johnny five but I, w I would say it is i think it is down to writing because this film was written and directed so the coen brothers it was most likely executively produced by them or produced by them as well they had quite a lot of control over this and this was the end product and you know it's quite a bleak almost kind of like dark comedy tragedy film and I'm, I'm wondering if they ever actually stopped and thought like who would be in the right kind of mood or what kind of audiences this are we aiming for or is this just like a kind of one-off statement of bleakness you know it, it, you know this is just it it's a good question because one of the things that i I always look at in media is and one of the one of the early questions with anything is I, I ask myself 
who is this made for? Who who is the target audience? And yeah. some audiences can be incredibly niche and small and very very tight. But the the Coen brothers they have a following. They have people who will go back to their movies they're at a stage almost where previous movies are now becoming their new movies almost like they're remaking their their own films which is funny when you you live in a time of remakes of oh, remakes no. of or adaptations of yeah so the the the, the coen brothers while remaining original still seem they, they seem to just be repeating things that have been in their filmography in the past but just nowhere near as good and to me that's that's a bit lazy rather than creative. Uh, I'm going to stick to the kind of harsher side of things. And <laughs> for this, for this, I'm I'm going to say the blame lies with them. I mean, you mentioned some good points, especially about like the humor. I mean, I, I I said that this is a tragic comedy, but I struggled to to find comic things in it. And I had some good quotes. You mentioned John Goodman poking and prodding Llewellyn with his. I keep do I keep saying Llewellyn? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's all right. Let's let's just uh, let's just acknowledge it and uh, right. Okay, it is what it is. It's fine. Maybe there'll be a drinking game. You mention comedic moments, and in a film that's billed as a, a tragic comedy, and I, I said that I I found it difficult always to find the comedy amongst the the tragic. But you mentioned things that Lewin is poked and prodded with the the cane and the funny threat that he gives John Goodman. You mentioned the army character Troy Nelson, mm. who is based on a singer-songwriter Tom Paxton, who he served in the army as well before beginning his career as, as a singer in Greenwich Village. Explain the cat. Yeah, sorry, it's, uh, it's the Gorfine's cat. I crashed there last night. What's its name? Uh, I I don't know. He snuck out. Do you the think door. you're staying here tonight? Leaving. Oh, uh, I was hoping to. Is Jim around? Jim's not here. We told Troy he could crash here. Troy Nelson, how are you? How you doing, Lauren Davis? Oh, hello. I've heard your music and heard many nice things about you from Jim and Gene and from others. <laughs> you have not heard one nice thing about me from Gene, ever. When Lewin wakes up and Troy Nelson is slowly and very noisily eating cereal, yeah. normally I would find that funny uh -huh. because I would think, yeah, that's that kind of deadpan humour coming in. Yeah. And I would now having watched that scene like four times, I just find it irritating. <laughs> and I'm going to compare it to another slow scene that... I feel was just it got the 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 humor right and it was in an extraordinary when Christian Winter removes slowly removes his leather gloves and then puts on his driving gloves that I found hysterical and it's it lasts much longer than the cereal eating but that's a scene that I can clearly see the Coen brothers want me to laugh at this I'm just irritated by it but <laughs> <laughs> what what for you though? What what were the comedic moments? I mean, obviously you can you can pick out more than one. But yeah, yeah. Because because you're laughing at that, I'm assuming that you did find the serial in scene funny. Yeah, and there's probably an element of it being quite close to home because Laura's. Oh God, like uh, th there may be some controversy over this, but basically Laura absolutely hates me and crunchy food or any other kind of food. I don't know if I have a clicky jaw. <laughs> or anything but essentially if I was eating crunchy nut 
mixed in with glass and twigs, I think Laura would have an aneurysm. So yeah. she, I found that really funny because Lewin is sleeping pretty peacefully. And I think what I found so funny was that Troy's basically just sat there watching him, which there's an element of creepiness, but then you find out that he's potentially not all there socially. So, you yeah. know, he is a little bit of a robot, which is why the joke that Lewin makes about yes. powering down makes it a bit funnier. Obviously, if anyone's listened to the, the Extraordinary uh, episode that we've done, like, I, I do love me some deadpan humour. Like, it's it, it really the flavour for me. And that's kind of how I saw it. I can, I can also see why it would be irritating, but that's, for me, is personally one of the really kind of funny moments. But I also kind of like the ridiculousness of it as well, that, you know, Lewin's in the coffee shop uh, with Jean, and he sees the ginger cat and just runs out and basically just picks the cat up. Like, even just little things like that, I found kind of funny. Like, it's New York. Like, nobody would question some bearded guy just running down a street, picking up a cat and then walking back the way he came, you know. It's, yes. nobody's, it's nobody's business, but it's still kind of silly and stupid and funny. And I think the other one is the really funny one for me is when Lewin asks Johnny Five, you know, can I, can I bum a cigarette? Can I take a, can I, can I get a, a fag off you? And he's like, I'm all out. And literally it cuts to the next scene and Johnny Five's lighting a cigarette and Lewin's just staring at him, like just giving him dead eye, like what the hell, like you said you'd. I, I kind of find things like that funny, but it might have been an element of contrast. I might have found those things a lot more funny because of the circumstance and everything else that had happened in the film. Because yes. there was so because there were so many near misses and bad things happening and it's just one thing after the other. When something funny is said, it, was kind of, it made me laugh more because... I was looking for it, like and I, I was needing, I was needing more needing balance. It. Yeah. Yeah. See, whereas with me, the humor just didn't hit the mark because by that, you know, like kick a guy when he's down. I don't have any cigarettes, and then I'm gonna just rub that in by the fact that I'm just gonna smoke openly. Smoke. I did have cigarettes, but you didn't get any, so I didn't necessarily take away from that the the humor, and I think the. I've seen it done better in, in previous Coen Brothers movies and I'm a big fan of, like we've discussed in previous podcasts, New Zealand deadpan humour. I'm not sure that, in my opinion, the Coen Brothers know how to do that. I think it, I think the Coen Brothers do Coen humour. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. is, which is very dark and it can be a slow burn, but I don't think it's as often surreal or as light-hearted as New Zealand deadpan humour. But now that you've said about, especially the serial eating scenes, I understand where humour would come from that. So perhaps it's just a case of that I've now watched it too many times that I don't find it funny. But on the flip side of that, if I sit down and watch Fargo, no matter how many times I see when the sheriff, the lady sheriff conducts her interviews, no matter how many times I, I see the responses, which is the same from everybody, the way they, they say yes, they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Could you could you tell me something about, oh, he was a little guy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's the description she gets from everybody when she's conducting these interviews to find these kidnappers. Uh, can you tell me anything about them? Uh, well, one of them was kind of little. The other one was kind of big. And... <laughs> That's so that repetition to me works when Marge Gunderson, the sheriff, pushes further 
because one of the one of the interviews she does was with a pair of prostitutes and it's again she gets one of them was little one of them was large she says you sure you can't remember anything else i don't think he was circumcised yeah <laughs> um, and it's, and marge just looks at them and goes okay yeah yeah <laughs> and just that back and forth whereas okay i can see now the troy scene being funny i can see other throw-off lines but i've seen it done better yeah which is fair enough because, you know, sometimes jokes like that shouldn't have to be watched multiple times for it to actually land. Usually if it takes a joke like that two or three attempts and it still hasn't landed properly, maybe it's just not for the person or maybe it's just no. not a very good joke. There's like a, it's not a saying, but there's like a rule when it comes to filmmaking and actors kind of get worried by this because if you're making a movie and everybody is laughing on set, at the jokes it normally means that when you watch the joke visually it's actually not funny ah. whereas if you film something on set and the people aren't laughing it tends to be that that's when the joke is at its funniest so amy hickering who we talked about who directed clueless yeah she gets worried as a director if people are laughing hysterically on set because it makes her really worried that when it gets to the cinema people aren't going to laugh at it ah. and she she actually took that away from from making clueless but i think if a if a joke is done well we should repeatedly laugh at it and yeah and it should have that moment where no matter how many times we see it we're never going to bore of it or we're never going to tire of it but that's that's just me again no that's uh, that, that makes sense and that's quite interesting you should say that i guess maybe people like jim carrey might be the exception to the rule because i know that some films like ace ventura were difficult to film because he was just such an over-the-top ridiculous person and then when you see the actual film he's over the top and ridiculous yeah very very i mean he's a very powerful personality yeah yeah because i know that he can be a very big personality and can be difficult jim carrey i know that there was a lot of issues when he went full method for man in the moon and became andy kaufman and pranked several actors and just always spoke in either his character of andy kaufman or as his alter ego persona tony which is like a late night uh, cabaret, really bad cabaret singer. Yeah. And there was a lot of tension on set. There's a great documentary on Netflix all about it. I think I've seen it, yeah. Uh, I think I watched it and it was, it was interesting. Bit of a difficult watch because I've always just seen, I've not seen things like uh, Sunshine on uh, Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, yeah. Uh, Laura's seen it and she's she's a big fan so I've still to see some of the maybe potentially slightly more serious films that Jim Carrey's done so I've always just seen like the funny comedic ridiculous ones but uh, I watched that documentary and it was just kind of hard to see him like really really pissing people off and being really difficult and it kind of made me lose even more respect for people that do method acting because obviously it works for certain people like Daniel Day-Lewis and things like that almost every role he does yes. has been like that but at the same time I understand trying to get into a role, but the whole point of acting is to portray a character in a story. And surely you must be a better actor if you're able to switch that off and switch it back on like that, rather than having to spend three months in a wheelchair to understand what it's like to be in a wheelchair and have cast and crew members carry you about because you point blank refuse to stand up. Here's looking at you. Yeah. 
Daniel Day-Lewis in my left foot, so things like that. But yeah, anyway, I die, I digest. What is your favourite part of Lou Ellen? <laughs> I did it again. <laughs> Take a shot. <laughs> Drink up. What is your <laughs> What is your favourite part of Inside Lewin Davies? My. Is it, oh, I did, I did, it's Davis, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. What is your favourite part, Doug? of Inside Lewin Davis. I think my favourite part, and because it's maybe just like a glimmer, not, not not necessarily of hope, but just a glimmer of not constantly being beaten down, is when he does the song at the end, the one that he used to do with his partner. Bear thee well. Bear thee well. Now, I really like that song. I really enjoy it. It's very catchy. I enjoy the lyrics. And um, I know there's two versions of it. There's the version that he does with his partner, and then there's the one that he does at the end. And... It doesn't differ too much, maybe a little bit in tone or in chord progressions and stuff like that, but it's essentially the same song. And I enjoy that because at the end, it's a slightly less depressing song than Hang Me. It, you know, it's a song I really quite enjoy and it seems that people are kind of getting into it. I know by that point he said that he's played the Gaslight for the like 400th time or whatever, but... He, you know, he, he takes he, he, he takes on the offer to play it because, you know, Gene asked on his behalf and I kind of just liked it because it was just very straightforward. He just played the song, it went well and that was kind of it. There didn't seem to be anything else to it. It was just the one of the more sort of plain bordering on optimistic moments of the film. Mm. So I think that's probably mine. What about yours? What's your fave moment, if you have one? I think for me, my favourite part is virtually everything with Al Cody, who's played by Adam Driver. He just has this terrible presence on screen. He seems to have that with any film that he's in. I laughed at Al Cody because he was actually a persona of himself. Mm -hmm. When he was in the studio, he was Al Cody the singer. And actually outside the studio, he completely dropped that persona and he became himself. Yeah. And it was quite nice because he knew that in order to get it in this business, that you sometimes have to pretend to be what you're not. And obviously the difference between him and Lewin is that Lewin doesn't want to be somebody that he's not doesn't necessarily want to get labeled as well but when adam driver is in the studio and he's just sitting beside the mic and lewin and jim are learning the song and practicing adam driver is just sitting there going shout <laughs> Woo! mr kennedy he's practicing his words for the song yeah. And it's just very funny. And then when you actually see them perform the song, that is my favourite moment because everything comes together. And even though Lewin actually took the mickey out of who wrote this, I'm happy for the gig, but who wrote it? Jim wrote it. It goes on to become a hit. That song embodies everything for me that folk music is. Upbeat, fun light-hearted about society powerful contextual messages but at the same time having that fun with it yeah and of course i've listened to that song by itself and i've re-watched the scene i think that i will revisit just that one section of the film yeah. because that's the one that makes me smile no that, that's quite good yeah that that was quite a funny moment actually outer space yeah <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh, 
That was uh that you right do that do that again because that that's going you're gonna have to add that to your impressions list <laughs> of uh, Adam Driver outer space and now you need to do the 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 low pitched Mister Kennedy Mister Kennedy <laughs> I've said this before I'm gonna say it again I I still believe that. You sit and practice these impressions prior, prior, <laughs> prior to hand. You just want me to believe that you are just doing this off the top of your head. No, I I am. You're locked in the bathroom, staring at yourself in the mirror, <laughs> going outer space. <laughs> oh, I, I, I wish. It's, no, it's just my crap superpower that I can sometimes pick up. Imperson- the human torch was denied a bank loan today. <laughs> the arsonist had oddly shaped feet. <laughs> I think it's time to reveal what you and I think about it using our unique reviewing system and yep. then we can also talk about what other reviews the film has got. So cool. would you like me to go first or would you like to kick us off with your infinity stones i'll kick us off the infinity stones and i gave it four out of six so you know just a notch above half halfway now i i enjoyed the film and i'm not exactly sure where i need to be emotionally and mentally in order to watch it um i was fine watching it for the podcast but i haven't watched it in potentially years before it but i remember going to the cinema and enjoying it but i think it's because i I might be a bit more optimistic and a bit for a bit more hopeful for the character and the story, even though it, it you know, I, I don't know if I maybe get something out of like just fighting against it. Like, no, things will be okay. Like, I'll, you know, I'll keep going until things are okay. And maybe there's a deleted scene somewhere, or maybe there will be a sequel where, you know, Lewin Davis is like essentially Bob Dylan in an alternate universe kind of thing and everything worked out fine and he reconnects with his son and develops a cure for cancer and all sorts of other things but um, yeah I think I'm just kind of I'm just hopeful and you know I found the funny bits funny but like I said earlier it's probably because of the the contrast and elements so I will give it a, I will give it a solid four out of six infinity stones how many chainsaws does it get from ye okay so I'm not as generous as yourself. I think we've we've established that. I have issues with the movie. I have issues with the Coen brothers this time out. And that's coming from a genuine fan of the Coen brothers. I have only fueled up one chainsaw out of five. I'm not I'm gonna admit I expected minus two. <laughs> <laughs> minus two chainsaws. <laughs> the Coen brothers owe me chainsaws. Well you see the reason I'm going to use one is because to use two chainsaws on the Coen brothers, that's just a waste of energy. So I'm just going to, <laughs> to stand back to back and I'm just going to use one on them. Fair enough. Yeah, okay, fair enough. One chainsaw for me, like I said, I had issues with the film. I had issues with the way that it tried to deal with key elements such as loneliness, such as the journey, such as depression. The one star is for some not all some of the music and adam driver fair play um well i'm afraid that you're the only person in the entire world ever because uh, the reviews said it was the best thing ever and uh <laughs> yeah you, you you are wrong and uh you don't ever let yourself tell yourself otherwise i don't know where i'm going with this but no um i can see that based on the reviews 
uh, that uh, I might be in the minority, as in the, the one single person. <laughs> Hit me with a review. So Rotten Tomatoes, which, as we know, is God, gave it 92%. Whoa! Not not 97%. Not 97. Oh. No, it's dropped. It's, there's no, there is a nine, but there's no sevens in the percentage, <laughs> which has been a theme for the last few podcasts. But no, Rotten Tomatoes gave it 92. But I, um, I, I thought it was kind of important to actually include that the audience. So you know how they give it, like Rotten Tomatoes give it a review, but they also in, include what the audience thought. The audience yes. actually gave it 74. So it that that is a bit more kind of you know it's not not necessarily on the fence, but it's far more mediocre. And it's it's a fair drop from what Rotten Tomatoes actually they deemed it. Um, so I thought 74 was quite a significant drop. Which is why I thought I'd put it in because I think when I've looked previously yeah. as well, it's been closer. Yeah, I think that's a it's, it's good to actually have that side by side comparison there, and perhaps that links into maybe the one of the struggles that the the film had actually finding an audience. Yeah, uh, yeah, potentially, yeah. Maybe it just didn't chime with anyone, any of the test audiences or whatever or however Rotten Tomatoes do it. Maybe it just it yeah it just missed the mark. But uh, what did uh, what did Empire think of it, David? You know that Empire and I don't always see eye to eye, and we couldn't be further fields apart because I'm sitting here with my one chainsaw gently buzzing away. <laughs> Empire have blown their load and given it five out of five stars. Llewellyn, oh, I said <laughs> Llewellyn. Take a shot. Take drink, a shot. Drink. Tequila, vodka. Lewin Davis is arguably the Cohen's most sombre outing yet. Might make its heavy elliptical nature especially tough on the viewer who prefers their entertainments wrapped in a neat little bow. Well, I'm sticking my fingers up to Empire because <laughs> I do not need a neat little bow, but I need more than this movie gave me. I want something doesn't need to be come in a box with a bow empire but no the coins have let me down i don't agree with five out of five stars i think that this is empire's continued way of overinflating certain films because they are potentially afraid or have too much invested in certain studios and filmmakers so I think there's a little bit of political bias going on there. Yeah, you're probably right. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Glenn Kenny from uh, RogerEbert.com gave it 4 out of 4, saying that Inside Lewin Davis is the most satisfyingly diabolical cinematic structure that the Coens have ever contrived. And that's just one reason that I suspect it may be their best movie yet. Now... I I'm gonna I'm gonna side with you on this that I would never I don't think I would ever say that it's their their best one because you know I don't I don't enjoy the Big Lebowski because it's considered like an almost like a classic I enjoy it because it is funnier in a lot more yes. places it's a lot more entertaining I think the pacing's better and things like the Big Lebowski yeah. and there's a bit more there's a bit more plot there's there's a there's a story there's a, it's a bit of an easier story to follow so I wouldn't agree with Glenn. Kenny on that one. I mean, obviously, they're saying it's most satisfyingly diabolical cinematic structure. I get that statement. I get what they're trying to say about going full circle or perhaps being trapped in. Lewin is trapped in his own purgatory. There's a very underrated Coen Brothers movie that is now gaining a new audience. Uh, it stars Tim Robbins and it's called The Hudsucker Proxy. 
Uh, the Hudsucker Proxy, it begins with its ending as well. Right. It's not destructive in the way that Llewellyn is. And it's almost their kind of attempt, not at a kid's movie, but certainly a throwback to films like It's a Wonderful Life. Kind of classic black and white comedies. Harvey with James Stewart. As we mentioned, two James Stewart films, It's a Wonderful Life. I would rather watch that than, than this so fair enough i see the point they're trying to make mm-hmm. about the way that it's structured and it, and why it possibly could be perceived to be their their greatest film yet but i go back to what i said earlier on i've seen it already done by the coins and i've seen it done better fair play and do you want to round us off with the the final review yeah so the new york times said in any case this is not a bio it's a Coen Brothers movie, which is to say a brilliant magpie's nest of surrealism, period, detail and pop culture scholarship. I'm not entirely convinced that I would say this is uh, a nest of surrealism. No, no, I wouldn't. I, I don't. I'm struggling to think of any surreal, surrealist elements in it, to be honest. The only thing I could think of would be moments like with the cat moments with Troy but I don't think that even then they warrant the description of surrealism if you want surrealism watch Raising Arizona one of those very first comedies which offers Nicolas Cage going full cage which (laughs) nobody does better than Nicolas Cage great comedy John Goodman is in that and it has got one of the funniest and the most surreal i would say bank robberies of all time awesome you want surrealism watch the big lebowski yeah i don't think that there's an element of surrealism in this film um now that you mentioned the big lebowski that um that would probably come under one of the other other recommendations so i reckon we should uh, give some recommendations i mean i know i've got my my little list of what I would recommend if you if you've seen this film or if you kind of enjoyed it or if you want to watch or see something kind of in the same vein there's other there's other Coen Brothers films um such as The Big Lebowski there's uh, Miller's Crossing and uh, No Country for Old Men one that I, one that definitely wasn't a Coen Brothers film I'm pretty sure it's not a Coen Brothers film starring uh, Colin Farrell among quite a quite an amazing cast was in Bruges and I would say yes. that 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 probably nails dark comedy or dark humor a lot better completely different sort of story that's kind of more like a kind of crime kind of crime based thing but i thought in bruges was tragic when it needed to be but the it, the emphasis was on funny more than anything else yeah. so uh, in bruges. fantastic recommendation Re- really good choice in bruges brilliant movie fantastic performances from brendan gleason mm. and from colin farrell as two hitmen working for some sort of uh, London-based gangster played by Ray Fiennes. Complete, powerful, memorable performance Ray Fiennes gives. Very similar to Ben Kingsley in Sexy Beast. And you're right, this in Bruges is funny when it's meant to be funny, but it's tragic when it's meant to be tragic. It really does deal with a man struggling with what he has done Colin Farrell's character is in the throes of a real 
life crisis and depression and as the film progresses you you get closer to find out what fuels that do you do you personally have any other um any other recommendations what i would like to say first is if you like folk music then i would recommend a mighty wind which came out in 2003 and is directed by probably one of the best directors of mockumentary films mockumentaries when you make spoof documentaries they they look like documentaries but it's all fictionalized christopher guest very famous for directing this is spinal tap and any fans of that will already know because we have been i think virtually in every podcast been saying that we're going to turn this up to 11 or we're going to dial up this up to 11 and he also directed best in show which great comedy about dog shows, Eugene Levy's in that and literally has two left feet, which is one of the best jokes in the film. But Mighty Wind is all centred around a producer of folk music who dies and a concert getting put on in New York to remember him. Whenever I'm out of wandering Chasing a rainbow dream I often stop and think about A place I've never seen Where friendly folks can gather And raise the rafters high With songs and tales of yesteryear Until they say goodbye Well, there's a puppy in the parlor And a skillet on the stove And a smelly old blanket And a Navajo wolf There's chicken on the table But you gotta say grace There's always something cooking At old Joe's place Come by around evening time Soon as the sun goes down Some drop in from right next door And some from out of town Bigger Well, there's a puppy in the parlor And a skillet on the stove And a smelly old blanket That a Navajo wove There's popcorn in the popper And a porker in the pot There's pie in the pantry And the coffee's always hot There's chicken on the table But you gotta say grace There's always something cooking At old Joe's place Now they don't allow no frowns inside Leave them by the door There's apple brandy by the keg And sawdust on the floor So if you've got hankering I'll tell you where to go Just look for the busted neon signs It flashes E-F-O's Well, there's a puppy in the parlor And a skillet on the stove And a smelly old blanket that a Navajo wolf There's popcorn in the popper And a porker in the pot There's pie in the pantry And the coffee's always hot There's sausage in the morning And a party every night There's a nurse on duty If you don't feel right There's chicken on the table But you gotta say grace there's always something cooking at old Joe's place. So you've got all these what were some classic 60s folk music singers stylized after many famous singers themselves who are now no longer together and it's a big kind of reunion. So you've got amazing music but you have the deadpan new zealand humor mm, nice that christopher guest is known for we call it deadpan new zealand humor because doug and i have been talking about a lot about uh, taika watiti and very much that kind of slow burn humor 
but it also completely catches you off guard and nobody does it better than Taika Waititi or Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords and, and Brett. So that's why we kind of mention it. A documentary which I would recommend if you want to get further insight into dealing with real issues like depression, dealing with anxiety, dealing with uh, loneliness would be The Devil and Daniel Johnson, which is uh, directed by Jeff uh, Fraser. And I, list, I read a, a book by journalist John Ronson, and he recommended it in that, and I, I went and got a hold of it. Daniel Johnson is a American folk singer who is pretty much often compared to the modern-day Bob Dylan, but Daniel Johnson has severe severe mental health problems which got in the way of his career and kept him from progressing to where he really should have been in the in the music industry but the film itself not only does it introduce you to the music of Daniel Johnson which most people became aware of overnight because Kurt Cobain wore a t-shirt of Daniel Johnson's album cover for one of his performances ah. and suddenly everybody was like who's Daniel Johnson Kurt Cobain always spoke very highly of, of Daniel Johnson and spoke of him as a huge inspiration and it's a it's a very inspirational documentary and very realistic and offers you real insight I've got two more and again these are to do with mental health again for me in a film that didn't get the mental health aspects of what Lewin Davis's going through correct that's why i'm kind of offering these recommendations yeah frank which came out in 2014 directed by lenny abram abrahamson it is a surreal film about a, a band the main singer who wears a, a papier-mâché head to mask his his true face and it's about their journey to america to put on a performance and unpredictability of that depression can have when it rears its ugly head it's very funny the music is completely weird and surreal and it's one of these films that you either love or absolutely hate i loved it and the last one that i'm going to say is todd phillips joker from 2019 which really showed the darker side of loneliness and depression, but not in a patronising way. Not only have you got an incredible performance by Joaquin Phoenix, but you get real insight into this is what it actually is like for people. And it's not a Disney version of depression. It's this is what it looks like. And speaking as someone who lives with depression, I watched that movie and... Not only did I love it, but I just loved the way that they handled the whole idea and that they, they did not hold back in what they were showing. Because the reality is that you have very, very dark days. If you unfortunately live with depression, like I have for the past four, going on five years, but that's only like diagnosed and in therapy and on medication. I'd been living about it for a long time before then, but to see a film like Joker that does not hold back, doesn't condescend, doesn't talk down to people who have mental health issues was, for me, a crowning achievement in 
filmmaking. Brilliant. No, that's really good. And uh, I suppose probably now would be a, a pretty appropriate time to obviously say that, you know, things are easing with lockdown and whatnot. But if you have struggled with uh, any sort of uh, mental health issues, I would definitely recommend first and foremost just speaking to any trusted friend or family member. You know, I yeah. personally find it a lot easier getting it out. Um, there are hundreds of resources and things that you can still have access to. There's the is it the is it the Big Black Dog? Is that the animation on YouTube? Which concern? Yes. Yeah. Big Black Dog is an incredible animation. It's very very short. It's important if people are suffering from these feelings that they can actually gain a lot of context and support from watching this animation, and it can finally, in a way, almost awaken you to this. This is what it feels like. It's important if you do feel like that, not only are you getting the help and support you need, but you can actually reach out to others and show them that animation because yeah. it's one thing for people to see it who suffer from mental health issues. It's another thing for other people to see it because then yeah. it helps with understanding and it helps with removing the stigma, the unfair stigma that is probably forever going to be there when it comes to mental health because the main stigma being you you can't physically see something. No, that's true. And you know what? To be honest, that is kind of appropriate for right now as well because everyone is currently hiding from something that they can't actually see right now, but it causes a lot of problems. And, you know, mental health issues are exactly that. You know, you can't always see the actual physical signs or any signs of it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's there. So if you, you know, if you're feeling, if you're feeling low or anxious or panicking or anything, I would definitely recommend uh, going online. You know, if, don't don't see it as a weakness or a problem. You know, just see it as something you need to. Th- think about and confront maybe speak to a, a trusted person about it and you know I'd, I'd, I would I would like to think that hopefully listening to this podcast might detach you from reality for a little bit some great advice there from Duke regarding mental health always the best thing to do is to speak about it just before we go to the what we're going to be talking about next week I'm just going to commandeer the podcast just for a, a brief minute or two. What I'd like to, to do is offer, not a side-by-side comparison here, but when I watched Lewin Davis, there was one thing that I had at the back of my mind and I felt quite strongly about, which was, I've seen this before, I've seen this idea before, and I've, and I've seen it done it better by the Coen brothers. Uh, it's almost like I'm experiencing deja vu watching the movie. And there is a theory out there that the Coen brothers have been remaking their own films for for the past few years. And actually unsuccessfully, I mean, I'm not a big fan of The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I, I really didn't like Hail Caesar. Uh, I think that they missed the mark as well. And I think this film, Missed the Mark, is it's not original. I've, I've seen it done better by the Coen. So Inside Lewin Davies is a story of a folk singer trying for and falling just short of success in the Greenwich Village folk scene. Another movie directed by the Coens, also nominated for a couple of awards, A Serious Man. It's the story of a Jewish maths professor who undergoes a crisis of faith when every aspect of his life begins to crumble seemingly out of the blue. What both films are at heart is the story of a man trapped in a depressive state, waiting upon a higher power for salvation, which never really arrives. Adding to that further sense of deja vu, the protagonists, one, Lewin Davis, two, Larry Gopnik from Serious Man, 
They're both men of around the same age and they're both living in 1960s America. A Serious Man is a very funny tragedy. It's a black comedy. For what it's worth, the distributors of the film, they actually, they were made posters that said from the makers of Burn After Reading, from the makers of The Big Lebowski. They are two comedies. They are labeling this film uh, a tragic comedy. They're saying, look, if you like these films, if you like comedy, watch this. The, the difference between the story when played for comedy as opposed to when it's presented as a tragedy can be seen most clearly in the characters. Now, Larry Gopnik, his default mode is confusion and anger. What are these things that are happening to me? Why are they happening to me? He questions. He doesn't deserve this. And that's the complete polar opposite to Lewin Davis, which uh, they grow out of, you know, successive misfortune. He takes each of them as a personal attack aimed at him. He delves into each tiny coincidence as though it were the key to solving the universe, unraveling it and ending up with, well, nothing. All the while, the characters around him are either indifferent or hostile towards Larry, and that furthers his actions and it furthers the hysteria and it makes you laugh more. Lewin, in contrast, is a much moodier and darker figure, whereas Larry's social ineptitude results in an awkwardly botched attempt to seduce a neighbour, Lewin results in family, friends and lovers who barely tolerate him. They all hate him. His couch surfing ways across acquaintances, you know, fuels his anger, his ingratitude, his arrogance, and it rubs the audience the wrong way. He is self-destructive in a way that Larry isn't. Larry is the lighter side of, of Lewin, who just stubbornly refuses to listen to everybody. Unlike Larry, Lewin receives an answer from his higher power, and that answer is that, you know, you're, you're not quite good enough. F. Murray Abraham sits him down and says... Lose the beatnik beard, lose the look, become a trio. Maybe you'll have a shot, but you ain't cutting it. And then the film keeps going. Lewin continues on his quest, doesn't get anywhere. The supporting characters in Lewin, they're odd, but they're not ridiculous. Even when they are ridiculous, when you've got Al Cody doing the novelty song, Please Mr. Kennedy, or you've got Jim and Troy, their actions are justified. And even Al, Al's playing a character of himself. You know, he, he, he drops that persona when he actually leaves the studio. And what's the reward for playing that character? Al Cody actually gets work, he gets gigs, he gets recognition, but he gives that character up as soon as he walks out. Troy is a rising star and he is signed by the producer that turns down Lewin. Troy is um, going to go on to bigger and better things. Jim, played by Justin Timberlake, he works steadily. He's a professional. He knows what the music industry is about and he uses that to his advantage. Lewin, it's almost like he looks down on these other people and he refuses to be a part of it. He won't compromise the way that he acts, resulting in his downfall. So he is self-destructive. So for the final word on whether a film is tragic or comic, look at how it ends. Inside Llewellyn, I said Llewellyn, take a shot, take a shot. Inside Lewin Davies' conclusion takes us right back to the beginning, creating a time loop which suggests Lewin is trapped in a purgatory. We mentioned that earlier. There's a historical cameo from Bob Dylan, who goes on to have the singing career that Lewin probably wants. The real life figure then contrasts with Lewin, the person who's never able to get a success. If you take a Serious Man's ending, Serious Man's ending is actually completely the opposite. It's overblown, it's really over the top. There is 
a hurricane about to wipe through the school. The redemption or the the tenure that Larry Gopnik wants to receive throughout the whole movie, he receives it. But then he gets a phone call from his doctor with some bad news. So it's kind of swept away from him in comical fashion as this hurricane heads towards the college that he works at. And it's very ominous and it's very well timed. And it's completely different to Lewin's I'm in the gutter and I'm down and out. The closing scene is like a, a punchline to the gut that is funny as opposed to the getting just left in the gutter as the world just turns around you. Both films have got the DNA of comedy and tragedy. There are moments to laugh and cry, but ultimately their separate tones inform the way we respond. One is dark and funny, while the other is just morbid. It skirts the border of comedy. It's familiar territory, but it's nothing they haven't done before and it's nothing they haven't done better. In the past, they've always used this kind of ambiguity of putting tragedy with comedy, but dealing with the whole idea of depression in a rather insensitive way with Llewellyn Davies potentially trapped inside his own vicious circle, forced to relive a bleak groundhog day where there's no escape. There's no joy in that for me. That's, that's that, very poignant, very, yeah, wow. I, I know that was very long-winded. <laughs> no, no, but it's it's a very good point. Um, it's really actually made me, kind of spurred me on more to watch A Serious Man. Is it, is it on, do you know if it's on Netflix? I don't know if it's on Netflix. I've got it on DVD, so I can certainly punt it your way when we get a bit more normality. But yeah, I mean, the thing is, though, that now that you have seen Lewin Davies, you might watch Serious Man and you might absolutely hate it. It's just one of these things. I can't say for a fact that if I'd seen Lewin Davies first, maybe I would have hated Serious Man. Serious Man, for me, is up there with Fargo. I spot something new every time I see it. It's got one of the, the greatest openings for any movie that I've seen involving a Jewish curse and a golem or Dubbock visit. And it's all subtitled, but it, that then has a knock-on effect with the rest of the movie because we're, we're reintroduced to Larry's ancestors at the start of the movie and are we seeing the curse being played out on screen? only for it to be briefly lifted at the end and then all this other stuff to happen in the background. That's what I love about this film. For me, that's what works better because you have tragedy and comedy walking hand in hand. Yeah. Whereas in this film, and I know that, and you've, you've very well justified comical elements to me, I just see the tragic and therefore, and I don't see the tragic dealt with in a very particularly good way brilliant okay well moving on from that yeah <laughs> i made sorry sorry i made it really heavy going there that's all so right sorry, no, if I've, all. Uh, sorry if i've wiped if i've like pulled the, the rug out from, <laughs> from underneath what are you want to do next week what would you like to watch and record I, and review i had a very long thought about what we should watch next week what we should record i was torn between several films then it suddenly hit me actually this morning on the podcast as i sat looking at my bookshelf and i was looking at my array of judge dread graphic novels and i thought well we've done spider-man and the spider-verse and not that I want to have this kind of comic book theme going, but I know that there is a 1995 version of Judge Dredd starring Sylvester Stallone that I think could be very interesting <laughs> to discuss, <laughs> if for all the wrong reasons. And Good. perhaps if we can 
if we can even, while we review that, throw in some comparisons here and there with the more recent Dread film, which was not a success, but is an incredibly underrated movie. No, that sounds good. I'm, I'm completely game for that. That sounds, sounds most good indeed. We're going for Judge Dread next week. They Judge Dread next week. That sounds good. I am the law. I am the law. Hey, John. <laughs> Wrong film. Excellent. Do you have any recommendations in terms of anything you've been watching, reading, any podcasts? Um, I watched the first episode of uh, Vikings on Amazon Prime last night and it was fine. I thought it was kind of cool, so I might stick with that. So, you know, if you've not given Vikings a go, give give it a go maybe because episode one definitely didn't turn me away. I thought it was quite good and I'll probably keep going with it. Are you a Star Trek fan? Ish. Ish. I have just made my way through Picard, which is on Prime. Mm. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And... I really enjoyed that, but I think I really enjoyed it being a Next Generation fan. I would recommend Picard, but that's one of the examples of something being for a niche audience. I'm not sure people would fully appreciate it if they hadn't experienced the Star Trek universe in some shape or form, because there's lots of little nods and tie-ins and things. So I've been watching that. So I, w- I would recommend Picard. Well, as uh, as for quotes on the outro, um, I won't do the full sweary one, and it's the only one from the film that I thought seemed kind of, it kind of, it kind of sums up the film in a one or so. Uh, my outro is going to, I'm not going to do the voice. I can't do the accent or Oscar Isaac's <laughs> voice, but I'm so tired. I'm so effing tired. I thought I needed a night's sleep, but it's more than that. I think I might have to go down the sweary route. <laughs> Do it. Compensate for my effing. Well, I'm going to hone my inner gene. My outro quote is going to be this. I should have had you wear double condoms. Well, we shouldn't have done it in the first place. But if you ever do it again, which as a favour to women everywhere, you should not... But if you do, you should be wearing condom on condom. And then wrap it in electrical tape. You should just walk around always and say the great big condom because you are shit. Everything you touch turns to shit. You're like King Midas's idiot brother. Awesome. Until next time, it's been a pleasure, Duke. I will see you in the future, uh, the not too distant future, in Mega City 1. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take it easy, stay safe, and uh, yeah, bye all. Thanks out. If I had wings, I'd fly up a river to the one I love. Fare thee well, oh honey. Fare well. Early one morning. I felt a naked pain 